Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may hear your words with joy. Amen. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from Matthew, third chapter. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight.
Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all of Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw that many Pharisees and Sadducees were coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire." His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Every advent of our lives, we have to pass John the Baptist to get to Jesus. John's easy to pick out of a lineup of God's robed, stern-faced saints. He's the lean, sun-bronzed one with the wild red eyes, the tussled hair, and the inner fire that lights up the darkened landscape of early December. He's more than any other, the prophets and visionaries of the church. He's the one who brings us the awareness that something is coming that is bigger than ourselves something more powerful, more majestic, and more meaningful than our imaginations can generate. John, carrying a tall staff on which is inscribed, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, helps us realize that life is moving inexorably through the darkness and shadows toward a dawn that we desperately desire. We project so much upon Christmas. We have so many expectations that invariably the day will not be able to bear all of them. And we'll be back again next year to pick up the story once again. John the Baptist connects us to the deep, unmet yearning that we all share for a world, for a community, and a creation that flourishes with the presence of God. Handel's air for tenor that David Magumba just sang so beautifully, every valley shall be exalted, lays out a vision of a world that works for all people everywhere. It's marked by compassion and justice and equity and peace. It's no idyllic vision, but a realistic picture of a world in which obstacles such as injustice and suffering and evil are met by the flattening, transforming power of God. When, Matthew, when in Matthew, John the Baptist calls today for us to prepare the way of the Lord and to make God's path straight, he's channeling the ancient vision of the prophet Isaiah that John read for us earlier. 
a God who does lift up valleys and flatten out hills, who straightens the curvy and tricky curves of roadways. Also that God may come in and restore a broken and fallen world and redeem the people in it. Also that God in the form of Emmanuel may today in love and in mercy come to us with peace. But even with a profound longing for a renewed world, we cannot get to this Emmanuel, this coming one, without going past John the Baptist. The marvel son of Elizabeth and Zechariah, John likely witnessed his father at work in the temple in Jerusalem, performing the ritual cleansings and carrying out all the duties of a temple priest, working on all the high and holy days. But John didn't stay in the temple in Jerusalem. He abandoned the ceremony and ritual of that place for the wilderness of the desert and the free-flowing rivers, and he became then a front man for Jesus. He moved his prophetic operations from the center of power and authority, from the bureaucracies and the place of money and influence, out to the margins of the wilderness. And there he proclaimed the coming of an empire very different from the Romans or of Herod Antipas. Maybe there's a model here for us to emulate. Now with John, the people don't have to go to God anymore. The old order of having to go up to the temple is disrupted. John is coming to the people. God is coming to the people And God's persistent love would not allow any hill or mountain or valley, no philosophy or ritual, no demand to block the way. No temple could contain a God who flattens mountains or baptizes in a wild stream. I compared John's arrival on the scene to the pandemonium that ensues when an ant landowner like me drives a big noisy tractor in a field mower over the nest of a large colony of yellow jackets. (laughs) My departure from the seat of the tractor was swift and decisive, (laughs) and apparently quite humorous to my observant neighbor Warren, who could only quip that when you cause a ruckus, you sure stir things up. (laughs) And so it is that John stirs things up. He follows, follows his challenge. Prepare the way of the Lord, with an edgy litany of assertions that cut us to the core. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance, and and the axe is lying at the root of the tree. And finally, Jesus, Jesus with his winnowing fork in his hand, clearing the threshing floor, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The severe tone of judgment may be hard to take, especially to people who have found safe refuge in a vibrant faith, in a community that practices acceptance and inclusion and mercy and offers refuge from harsh Christian judgment. Too many of us gathered in this healthy, vibrant, inclusive community are people who might be recovering from that stark judgment. Christian spouses recovering from the unbending judgment about marriage, divorce, and healthy relationships. Gay, lesbian, and transgendered persons recovering from 
implausible interpretations of scripture and polity and cruel practice of exclusion. Just inquisitive people who found themselves in churches with unflinching and fearful interpretations of what scripture leads us to believe and to do and instinctively sought out a community grounded in authenticity and hope. People naturally seek a community where they feel at home, a community that accepts, adores, and values and challenges each person to embrace a God who prefers grace to judgment. We try to live into that reality each day here at First Pres. Offering this, our community is a vessel of hope, of welcome, and connection. But we would do well to pay attention to the core of John the Baptist's challenge and his indignation. Underneath it all is a captivating vision of the way the world is supposed to be. It resides first in the imagination of Isaiah the prophet, the section from Isaiah that John read. Imagine, if you will, Isaiah 11 as a matched pair of paintings on how the world is supposed to operate. On the left is a painting of a young boy, a young king, vital, alive, and strong, and decisive, serene and bearing an exuberant joy about his vocation. Surrounding him is an air of wisdom. On the hill behind him there is, well, there is an ancient monarch lying dead and behind him are yet others, other ancient monarchs, cruel and now past. And nearby is a gathering of the poor and vulnerable, whose faces are lifted up and radiant with hope. But yet on the right panel is a fantastic gathering of beasts and children, none of whom should be standing next to each other. There are the sleek and powerful carnivores at the top of the food pyramid leopard and wolf and lion and bear, while the domestic animals stand close by, calf and ox and lamb and goat, the predators and their prey hanging out together in a visual parable of peaceableness, and a child sings aloud to them as a toddler plays over the nest of deadly snakes. Beneath the left panel is the title Justice, and beneath the one on the right, there is the title, Peace. So when John comes and begins to stir things up with his pithy rhetoric, it would be nice to imagine that John had only the scribes and the Pharisees in mind when he spoke strongly of judgment. But in the larger context of Matthew and the Gospels, it all is clear that we all need to be on our toes. We need to pay attention because when John arrives... And then does the Jesus he announces arrives, John comes to us then, Jesus comes to us then with the most astonishing blend of acceptance and admonition that we can imagine. He comes with equal measures of grace and mercy, of compassion and justice, welcome and challenge. We all discover this at Advent and see not only are we cherished for who we are, but we are responsible for what we do. This is Advent good news because if God does not care about what I do, then it's quite possible that God does not care about me. If God loves me enough, if God loves you enough to welcome you into God's family, 
then God cares enough about you and about me to expect something from us. Bill Meal underscores this point with an Advent story. One December afternoon, families stood in the lobby of a children's nursery waiting to claim their children. It was just after the last pre-Christmas class session. And as the youngsters ran from their lockers, each one carried in his or her hands the surprise, the brightly wrapped package on which he or she had been working diligently for weeks. It was a gift. One small boy trying to run and put on his coat and wave to his parents at the same time slipped on the floor and the surprise flew from his grasp and broke with an obvious ceramic crash. The child began to cry inconsolably. His father, trying to minimize the damage, ran and comforted the boy and patted his head. Now that's all right, son, he said. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. But the child's mother, wiser in these situations, swept the boy up into her arms and said, Oh, but it does matter. It matters a great deal. And she wept with her son. All of it does matter. Our Advent worship and workshops, our banners, our wall hangings, our pyramids, our devotions, our mission and service, our prayers, it all matters. John the Baptist is the reminder that we all need to practice accountability. What we do matters, and we do matter. And while the church can set aside judgment, it cannot forgo responsibility. And so it is we need John the Baptist. He matters to all of us each year. He's so peculiar, cast in unambiguous relief to the jovial, bland Christmas music, the hollow advertisements of base consumerism, the thin portrayals of flawless families. That's exactly why we need his uniform of camel hair and strident call to repentance and responsibility. We know deep inside that even as we think we do not aspire to them, those messages of beautiful and more and perfect do not hold up to the intricacies, complexities, and disappointments of this life. Families are complicated. Work teams are complicated. Schools are complicated. Our businesses no place is picture perfect, no home, no device or jewel or garment offers purpose or meaning or hope, not for long and not really. We know we often hurt others, especially those close to us. We know we do not care for the creation that sustains us. Somewhere for in us, we long to be held accountable and to given the chance to repent, to attempt to do and to be better. In the film, The Grand Canyon, an immigration attorney is driving in one of those interminable California traffic jams, and he attempts in his desperation to bypass the traffic jam. He must be using ways. His route takes him along streets that become increasingly dark and bleak. And then the predictable bonfire of the vanity's nightmare unfolds. The man's fancy car stalls on a dark street. 
whose guardians wear expensive sneakers and carry guns. Carry guns. Somehow he manages to call for a tow truck, and, but before it arrives, five young street toughs show up and, well, they threaten him within an inch of his life. Well, just in time, the tow truck driver shows up, and its driver, who's an earnest and genial man, begins to try to hook up the luxury car. The Toffs protest, they're taking away, he's taking away their meal. And so the driver takes, truck driver takes the group leader aside and attempts a five-sentence introduction to metaphysics. Man, he says, the world ain't supposed to work like this. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than the what is here. The tow truck, dr tow truck driver is an heir to St. Augustine, and his summary of the human dilemma belongs in every theology book. For central in our Christian understanding of the world is a concept of the way the world is supposed to be, the way things ought to be as designed and created and run by God, both in creation and in the transformation of the world. They're supposed to include peace that adorns and completes justice, respect and goodwill, deliberate and widespread attention to the common good of all people, especially the vulnerable he wants to say that God's plan for the cosmos is precisely this, that peace and harmony and beauty prevail. Make no mistake, God is about bringing this about again and again. So when and where, we rightly ask, when hundreds die in a Philippine typhoon, when death in Iran and Iraq and Syria is a daily event, when gun violence is so common that we can hardly summon the emotion to care anymore, when so many of our fellow U.S. citizens are poor and becoming poor, how can anyone imagine in their wildest fantasies that the wolf will ever lie down with the lamb? It seems like nothing more than a cruel joke. Yet, so Isaiah, echoing the call of our God, proclaims this to be true. This season we simply cannot give up the reality of this bold dream. It's this conviction, the certainty of God's desire for the world, that lures us onward, joining the journey toward that reality. This is the reason for Advent and Christmas and the whole Christian thing that John the Baptist anticipates for us. God has planned for us and we are asked to join in. The new king is coming, and this king will usher in a bold new universe. May we hope for it, work for it, pray for it, for without that dream, we indeed will perish. Thanks be to God for God's great dream of a peaceable kingdom. Amen and amen. Let us continue on in the spirit of prayer. Let us pray. God of majesty and simplicity, wholeness, shalom, and peace is what we seek. Let us both search for it and bring it into being, beginning here with us, for the world is not as you meant for it to be.
Injustice, despair, and brokenness are there. Hatred fans the flames of evil in the world. The technology we value is used against us as tools to dispense bigotry and bullying. We have become comfortable with poverty and okay with labels, the objectification of people based on race, background, gender, or identity. War and hurt and disease and all manner of isms that serve no good purpose but to protect our fragile egos and deeply held insecurities. They are able to thrive. Advent's hope for peace whispers to us that we must not give up or give in, and so we turn to you with strength in the moments of goodness, with inspiration from grace unfolding. Help us to believe and to do. We pray you are near, for we need you. We can't do it alone. We never could. Merciful Savior, the fragile, the vulnerable are all around us, even within us. We have been estranged from others. We may be in that place right now. Come. The lonely, the grieving, the depressed, the addicted, come. Those wandering, those awash in apathy, those drowning in debt, come. This Advent and the awakening of our faith give us the vision to see you in the darkest places and follow you without fear. We know, O oh God, that you have told us Advent is about expectation, but we've been here before. Remove from us our cynical responses to the hymns and liturgy and stories we hear and untether us from skepticism. Help us find an authentic welcome when you come, a readiness to embrace a child whose presence changes everything, and then tell us what to do next. We have much to be grateful for. Stunning winter sunrises, common hopes and hardships that bring us together, laughter, encouragement, and mystery, for joy even in the midst of struggles, for family members who accept us as we are for conflict which shapes us, for wisdom and experience, for our rest in leisure, for this church, for this denomination and its commitment to finding a way to live together in disagreements that do not hinder our love for you. As we move from gratitude to expectation for your most <coughs> precious gift to us, let us partner with you in every way that we can live thankful, joyful, and expectant lives through Christ we make this prayer who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.